Hi everyone, welcome back to the World Triathlon Edmonton Science and Triathlon Podcast. This is a series of interviews that we're having with the speakers of our 2020 Science and Triathlon Conference that is happening online as monthly seminars in partnership with the University of Alberta. The conference is 100% free, so if you're interested in, in knowing more about it, please make sure that you give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter. We are at WTS underline Edmonton. And if you have missed any of the previous seminars, then the recordings will always be made available on our website. So check www.edmonton.triathlon.org and under the tab 2020 Science and Triathlon Conference, you can find more information about previous seminars. This is episode number three, and today we're going to be talking with legendary coach Dan Path. Dan is going to be talking about energy leaks and disturbances, what he means when he actually talks about energy leaks and disturbances, his four spheres of influence that play a crucial role in athletes' development and performance, and how we can make the most of our training with our athletes. If you're not familiar with Dan's work yet, check his bio on our website. But just an overview of Dan's performance achievements, he has tutored 53 Olympians with 10 medals to show for it, 58 World Championship competitors with 11 medals, 5 world record holders, he has directed athletes to 57 national records including 2 Paralympic gold medalists and 2 Paralympic world records. He has coached at 10 Olympic sur- uh, Summer Games and served on 5 Olympic Games coaching staffs for 5 different countries and 10 World Championship staffs for 6 different countries. Then has lectured in 37 countries, published in over 20 countries and he has provided consultancy to players and teams in the NFL, Major League Baseball, National Hockey League, PGA, Canadian Winter Olympic programs, the WTA, AFL and European Soccer League. He has also coached 29 NCAA individual national championships and 150 All-Americans. And that's not even all that I have here on his bio. So he truly is one of the best in the game and we're excited to have him on the show today. Dan, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today uh, and having this conversation. We are very excited about about your participation in, in our conference and presenting in October with, with Dr. Jim Denson. For those that might not have heard who you are or might not have a great idea for, about your background, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you started in sport, how your coaching career developed. I doubt that anyone will not be familiar with your, with your work, but I'll pass it on to you. All right. Well, <clears throat> my name's Dan Paff and uh... I've been a coach for close to 50 years. Uh, Right now I'm in kind of a semi-retirement mode. So I I work at the Altus Training Center in Phoenix. And then I do a lot of international and national sport consulting, uh, whether it be return to play from injuries or programming and uh, do complete SWAT on every aspect of the program and try to help people uh, come up with better planning, better ideas, better philosophies. Uh, I started as a high school coach in Ohio uh, in in the uh, early 70s, and that was in an era where the coach uh, really didn't have a lot of science or tech or support. And you you were forced to be a generalist because you had very little staff. 
And I was a science teacher. I taught all the sciences, chemistry, physics, electronics, biology, stats, math, you name it. It was a small rural school. Uh, I coached football and wrestling and basketball and track and field. And I was the intramural director and I taught driver's ed on the weekend. Uh, I, <clears throat> I grew up on a farm. My dad was con in construction. So we, uh, he built uh, shopping centers, things like that, and we farmed. So again, I was forced into being a generalist because in construction, you have to know all the trades, you know, bricklayers, mm -hmm. odd carriers, electricians, framers, what have you. Uh, on the farm, again, you're a generalist, you're, you're growing crops, you're buying livestock. We were dairy farmers. So I was pretty blessed to grow up in an era where I was forced to be a generalist. Um, and you know, we, we didn't have a lot of resources, so uh, I grew up with encyclopedias. Uh, this is before the internet, so a big treat for me was going to the library and digging through stacks and looking up things. My graduate degree was in biomechanics, mm -hmm. and again, this is before technology. So in biomechanics, we had to hand crank projectors with film on the wall and protractors and measuring <laughs> angles and doing frame-by-frame frame analysis. And so the cool thing there is you understand where all this technology and these algorithms come from because you had to do it the old-fashioned way. So to review a jumper's effort, you know, all of his steps on the approach and the flight and the landing, it might take 10 hours to get all those measurements. Now it takes 10 seconds when you hit a button. So... Uh, Kind of a peripatetic journey. I, I coached at university level, uh, NCAA Division I level for about 30 years. Um, been blessed to, to lead some training centers. I, I was director for the USOC training center in Chula Vista in California. I ran the London training center in England for four years leading into the Olympic Games. And I, I've done a lot of work with various federations around the world, spent extensive time in those countries like Korea, Sweden, uh, Germany, and a lot, uh, very involved in coaching education. We started the NACAC organization for coaching ed in the Caribbean and Central America, and then I've been heavily involved in U.S. coaching education. So um, I believe in giving back, and, and I believe, you know, we coaching education mm -hmm. is a super super important aspect of sport Dan, that's fantastic that you, you know you have a numerous experiences with developing high-performing athletes and that is actually the point that we that we would like to touch on on this conversation today is throughout your your whole experiences as as a coach and and as you mentioned that it's it's nice to have an impact when you hear those ideas about athlete development or having a holistic approach to athlete development, when you're trying to work towards developing a high-performing athlete, what are some, some of the key fundamental principles that you, that you abide to or the specific things that, that comes to your mind when you start thinking about developing a, a high-performing athlete? Well, I'll kind of ref refer back to what I'm going to speak about in, in the symposium. And I, I think anybody that's coached, one of your number one frustrations is injury. That's what keeps you awake at night. That's what the, confuses the puzzle. That's what demotivates the coach and the athlete and the people around them. And I think 
our statistics and our research epidemiologically over time, we've identified four big variables that influence injury factors in, mm -hmm. in all athletes, whether you're a weekend warrior or, you know, a national level athlete or an Olympic level athlete. And those four big rocks for us, first of all, is programming. If, you know, there's a, a lot of complexity to programming. If, if you don't get the program right, you don't have contingencies and good plan Bs because nothing's ever going to go how you write it down. You know, mm -hmm. you can have an annual plan, a mesocycle, microcycle. Most coaches and athletes, if they're honest, seldom do you tick all those boxes the way you drew it up. So good coaches and resilient athletes are contingency people. They know how to adjust, nudge, morph, adapt. You know, when we play with the big rocks like volume and intensity, but density and menu selection and hierarchy of menu items, all of those things are unique puzzles. So programming is number one. For us, biomechanics. Mm -hmm. If you're mechanically sound, then you have less risk of injury and you have greater functional efficiency. So identifying a technical model, yes, there's bandwidths to all models, but having a model that you teach to and that you hold people accountable. It's amazing to me in an endurance research and running and swimming, cycling, everyone talks about economy, running economy. Or, mm -hmm. But then when you ask coaches and athletes, what are you doing to monitor it? And what are you doing to improve it? They're just, well, oh, it's important. Yeah, well, if it's important, then what are you doing? And so I'm a, I'm a bit biased. I believe there, there's technical models for various sport expressions. And there's bandwidth, you know, genetics, injury compensation, stage of development, whatnot. But you, you don't see any world-class marathoners running with their arms perfectly straight for 26 miles. Mm -hmm. You know, there's certain characteristics of gait from mid stance to toe off to leg swing to where you contact the ground. You can get into arguments about amount of supination or pronation or dorsiflexion, but there's a bandwidth to all those landmark positions and movement expressions. And act like there is, and I'll just be an ecological dynamics person, say they'll figure it out. Well, then why coach? So a review, biomechanics and planning. A third would be lifestyle. And lifestyle is a pretty big umbrella. It could be sleep hygiene, diet, nutrition. But there's other factors in lifestyle. Mental resilience skills, coping strategies, you know, how do you handle financial stress, relationship? What are the icebergs like family of origin issues that sabotage your self-talk? So we have these lifestyle factors. So now we're juggling three balls. We've got programming, we've got biomechanics, and we've got lifestyle. And that will throw in this fourth ball, and a lot of people are going to be uncomfortable here, and that's sports medicine inputs. There's a lot of bad sports medicine out there. <laughs> And unfortunately, we put medical type officers on a pedestal that, you know, they've been educated, they got all these studies, and yet sport injuries are at epidemic levels all over the world in a variety of injury patterns and chains. So 
We've got four balls that we're juggling for elite athlete success. What are we doing with programming? What are we doing with biomechanics? What are we doing with lifestyle factors? And who is influencing our sports med input? And I don't care what level you are, you, you need sports medicine advice and input. You're gonna have overuse injuries, chronic injuries and acute injuries. You're gonna have illnesses, you know, how do you balance hormonal and immune response on the HPTA axis and how training influences that? So if you don't have expertise and understanding and develop a symphony of these four factors, I think you're going to be pretty limited in development. That's, that's a good perspective. And, and if you allow me, I'll, I'll like to ask you a few more specific questions about some of these, these key concepts that, that you mentioned. I was actually having a conversation with an elite triathlon coach yesterday, and we were discussing this idea that, you know, some sports do this very well, particularly when we think about team sports, for example, in that they have an integrated support performance team where they have physiotherapists, psychologists, the whole game of sports medicine professionals that actually take care of all the little details that they that might come into, into an optimal performance. But that is not necessarily the case in some endurance sports, and sometimes it's not necessarily the case in, in triathlon as well. And then you have a coach that, you know, has to know a lot about the biomechanics of swimming, cycling, running, and the physiology of swimming, cycling, and running. And that has to be able to, you know, put all those pieces together because you're not doing any of those activities individually. You're putting that together as part of one sport. Have you come across any successful integrated performance teams in, in endurance sports? Have you had experience working with those or... Yeah. At least what's, what's the role that you see this playing in, in performance? Yeah, so I, I do quite a bit of advisement. And, and, and being a coach, you know, I've had stops where I've had to coach endurance athletes. So I, I've worked at Olympians at every level from marathon to 10,000, 5,000, 15 steeple, male, female, university level, Olympic level. So not totally naive or blind to the problems. I've mm -hmm. consulted with several uh, world-class triathlon teams. Uh, I've worked a lot with world-class Olympic swimmers and uh, cyclists is probably my weak spot. You know, I've done a lot of work in New Zealand with uh, velodrome type cyclists uh -huh. and all that, but not Tour de France type cycling. But that said, I mean, sport is sport. Physiology is physiology, programming is programming and whatnot. I think the, the big thing is somebody has to be a gatekeeper in a project. And a lot of times that falls down to the coach. And so if you don't have expertise as a coach in that area, or at least a fundamental understanding, then that's on you to go out and build a network of people and advisors to help fill in those gaps. So, I'm not a very intelligent guy. I was very average on my college boards. I was very average on my grad school boards. I was very average in scores. But growing up on the farm and in construction, you learn how to network and seek advice and develop networks and hierarchy of networks of expertise. And you build files over time. So like if I get a weird radiology report, I have four or five radiologists that are excellent in sport. Mm -hmm. But I'll send out the film or the report to and say, look, I'm confused. I'm struggling here. And I wait for a consensus from these five trusted guys into my network. 
So I always get the excuse, well, we don't have budget, we don't have access. Well, with the internet and FaceTime and Zoom and whatnot, there's no excuse for not building networks. And there's ways to develop networks. I call it horse trading. You know, you don't have money, you know, what can you give them? Can you give them data? Can you be a part of their research or, or whatever? There's ways to massage, nudge, and build networking. But ultimately, it, it depends on the gatekeeper to build these integrated teams. And if you're going to wait on the federation or your club to build it, you're going to wait your whole career. It's just not going to happen. So you have to be proactive and, and build. And, and we know from great clubs and teams and federations and programs what an integrated team looks like. So we can identify the players. You talked about psychologists and maybe psychiatrists and soft tissue people and a radiologist and fascial expert and biomechanist and a physiologist. You, you can build those things out or at least you can tap into people. Like a lot of times I'll chase a world-class researcher. He's too busy, blows me off. I'll find out who his grad students are. I'll start emailing them. Somehow I'm going to get connected into that lab to expand my knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I really think it's about curiosity and, and willpower on the gatekeeper's watch, if you will, to build these teams. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a nice perspective that you put in terms of just finding those people in, in labs around the world or the top researchers. And one of the things that I, I've noticed over the, over the past few months is that lots of those, of those people have a little bit of extra time on their hands right now. And they are very willing to actually have these conversations with, with people who, who reached out. I've been trying to, to create my own networks and I've, I've been reaching out to quite a few people and, and the responses that I've been getting have been extremely positive and I've been having weekly or bi-weekly conversations with some of the top sports scientists in the world or some of the top coaches in the world. And it's been, it, it's been really good from, from that perspective. And there's, there's no reason why, you know, a, a triathlon coach couldn't, couldn't start putting those, those networks together and start enhancing the, their teams and their, and their athletes performance. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I truly believe that a lot of people don't mind sharing as long as there's some return. I tell my mentees all the time, if all you do is take, this relationship's pretty short shelf life. And there's ways to give back. You know, like I said mm -hmm. earlier, can you share data? Can, can your information help them? Can you be part of a pilot project or a beta test? I think a lot of people get frustrated chasing expertise or a network but it's their own fault. All they do is take, they don't offer mm -hmm. in return. And these are reciprocal relationships. If you want them to grow and evolve, it's gotta be a reciprocal paradigm, if you will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's exactly what, what I've been hearing from, from these people that as, as long as you know, it's a two-way conversation and you're not just trying to, to get all the information that you can from them, but you're actually contributing as well, that they're, they're more than happy to, to keep those conversations going. But then if you allow me, I'd like to, to get into that, that lifestyle piece that, that you mentioned and a little bit more on, on coaches' soft skills in terms of communication with the athletes, of understanding the athletes, and how do you go about communicating with your athletes or creating that environment where 
you can have a good understanding of what's happening within an athlete's lifestyle so that, as you mentioned, if you need a contingency plan or if you need to modify anything within your planning, then you can, you can make those decisions based on what the, the information that the athletes are, are bringing you. Well, I think there's layers to this process, obviously. Um, probably the hard bit for a lot of coaches is if, if you want sincere, open reporting, accountability, you have to become vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So if you're a top-down military guy, it's not happening. And you're probably going to have to blow up some history that this athlete's had with previous coaches or family members or teachers or trusted advisors. So our, one of our first jobs is to get athletes to report honestly and completely. Like if you got sniffles, let us know. If your index finger aches while you're driving to practice, tell us about it. There's no detail too small. You may think it's trivial or minor. Let us, let us decide. Mm -hmm. But th that comes with responsibility. If the coach overreacts to reporting, then the athlete's going to be hesitant to report. So, so there's an art on how you process vulnerability in reporting. Uh, we use a debrief system here. So we, we have informal debrief processes and induction processes, and then we have semi-formal and then formal. So before we take an athlete on, there's an induction process. We collect history, we talk to previous coaches, we might talk to spouse or family members. We're gonna get a picture of what's going on. We're gonna have video of what they look like when they're competing. We're gonna have face-to-face -face meetings with questions and uh, this leads itself into the art of questioning. Can you ask questions in order to ask better questions? Mm -hmm. A real problem for a lot of coaches, we listen in order to ask a question. We don't listen to process information. We listen in order for us to speak. And so what are we doing to improve our listening skills? Because you can have a person reporting real honestly, but if your bias and your anticipation of what you want to say colors that out, then you didn't process that information. So this debrief process uh, during practice, certain buzz questions to ask that are dependent on time of the year, time of, of that cycle or stage of development, post-practice debriefs, mm -hmm. end of the week debriefs, end of a training cycle debriefs, post-competition debriefs, pre-competition induction discussions. I make athletes keep training journals Mm -hmm. And I, every day they have to write down three things they're grateful for and the three most reoccurring self-talk topics that are going on in their world. And those are discussion points in the daily debrief. Mm -hmm. And if, if they're grateful for the same three things over and over and over, well, that's, that's a topic to talk about. And self-talk, trends and patterns. Self-talk is a nasty virus. It, it can be like plasma therapy if you can control it and influence it, but it could be a fatal virus if left uncontrolled. So for me, if I know what they're grateful for and I know what's going on in the back of their brain, 
those are pretty good starting points for conversations. I, I really like the concept of having the athletes write down those, those three things that they're, they're grateful for every day and throughout, throughout their training programs. Then if you allow me to, to ask one more, I recently, we recently interviewed John Kylie for, for this podcast and, and he's going to be one of, one of our presenters in, in, in September. And John was talking about this idea that he has on that periodization paper that, that he wrote that training adaptations happen on this background of an emotionally, uh, mechanically loaded background that the athletes might have when they, when they come to, to a training session so that he, he always takes those first 5, 10, 15 minutes when the athletes come in and they're warming up and everything to try to make sure that the athletes are starting to prepare mentally for the training session and psychologically for the training session so that they're in the right mindset to actually train and perform to the best of their extent and then consequently get the training adaptations from, from that one training session. Would you guys have that at Altis as well? Or do you do that with, with the athletes that you're working with? Yeah, for, first of all, John's a longtime friend, a good guy, and a tremendous coach. Um, yeah, that, that's part of our induction process. So, it, And again, it's layered. We're watching them as they get out of the car. What's their body language? We're watching them walk into the stadium. Mm-hmm. How they stand? Who are they talking to? Are they talking? Are they not talking? Are they being a hermit? Are they rubbing on something? Are they distracted on their phone? And then that starts conversations. We have scripted warm-ups that build. So if they're too hyper, we may de do a descending warm-up to calm things down and interject some conversation. If they're flat as a pancake, we may do an ascending warm-up <clears throat> trying to excite and activate. And again, conversations that are morphed to improve that facility. So it's a never-ending screening process. And that screening process determines feedback loop, induction questions, debrief questions. So it's, it's kind of a, a cyclic world the whole time where we're, we're monitoring and those monitorings and metrics are influencing conversation and strategy of training methodologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting take on, on warm-up as well because it's one of the things that we I want to say that we definitely struggle as, as a group when, when we're discussing with students at a sports science or exercise physiology program in university. When we, when we discuss warm-up, we discuss warm-up warm specifically based on the physiological benefits that you might, that you might get from, from a warm-up. And there's, there was even a recent paper that came out saying that, you know, if you're only performing a 20-minute cycling session, then actually performing a warm-up has no impact on your performance so technically, you know, you can just skip the warm-up and, and not do that. But then having this, this background, this idea of everything else that you can, that you can do as part of your warm-up makes, makes perfect sense in terms of, yeah, maybe not in that one specific session has an influence, but over the long term, this is going to have a, a, a massive effect on, on how you adapt to training. Well, and I, I think some of this is a little bit of definition too. So you may not do what is looking like a classical warm-up, but say you're a runner and you get out of bed and you slam a coffee and you go on a 10 mile run. You probably don't jump into that run's pace right out the door. There, there's probably a segue in tempo and postures and range of movement. So in my mind, that is a warm up. Mm -hmm. So what are you saying to yourself? What are you monitoring in that segue into the actual output 
metrics that you desire for that. So like in Olympic lifting, these guys, they don't really do a warm up. They come into the gym, they get with a bar, they do a few movements, they add a little weight, do a few movements, a little more weight, and then they start the workout. Well, so that's their warm up. It may not be the classic, let's stretch or do drills or something, but warm up is an ambiguous term. And to me, warm up is what activities you're doing from the minute you start a session until you get into the meats and bones of that session. Anything leading up to that, to me, is a warm-up. That, that, that's an inter interesting take and definitely, you know, something that coaches can take and, and put that into perspective, especially what you say, you know, everything that happens from the minute that the athlete arrives to the, to the training session and then just, just taking a look at their body language and so on. And it also comes to another point that I, uh, I discussed with uh, Dr. Seiler and, and, and John Kiley that, the job of the coach is it's safe for, for the future. There's, there's still no, no substitute to what, to what the coach can actually do or to what the coach can actually see. doesn't matter how you know, the many different questionnaires you might get the athletes to fill on a daily basis to assess their, how, how well prepared they are for those training sessions or so on. The, the, the job of the coach is, is still safe within, within sports for now. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a human element in, in, in sport. And no matter how advanced we get with artificial intelligence and, and all these algorithms and whatnot, uh, we haven't figured out a way to crack the code for intuition or wisdom. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a good point. But then if you allow me just, just to circle back, you did mention that you collect a few hard measures or a few more objective measures from, from the athletes on, on a daily basis. What, what would you collect to assess that readiness or preparedness to train that the athlete might, might have on that particular day? And what do you consider to be some of the most important measures if, if you're working with endurance athletes? Well, I mean, you know, there, there's layers of measurement metrics and analysis you know, resting, heart rate, ventilation values, you know, body scan, what hurts, how bad, pain indices, uh, mental focus indices. So if I got people that have a tendency to blank or drift or be preoccupied or they're OCD, that, you know, there are certain questions I'm going to have them fill out and some kind of density pattern, not every day because it becomes white noise. Yeah. So part of the art of coaching is figuring out which questions to ask or which metrics to monitor and how often do you monitor it? Because if you over monitor it, it just gets confusing or you don't see enough variation to make a determinant. You know, do mm -hmm. you do HRV? Well, HRV, if you don't build your own norms over time with your certain populations, you may overreact to some data, mm -hmm. you know? So, a lot of times in the warm-up, because I've always worked, seldom have I worked where I've had great facilities and staffing and resources. So I've been the guy. So I have to get some field measures. So I'll look at coordination ability, postures, body language, rhythm. Look at eye twitch. Mm -hmm. now, if they're staring into space during warm activities, they're not really switched on from an ocular sense. Well, if the, if the eyes aren't switched on, 
body movement's going to be compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the simple things like tone of voice or, you know, if you've got a, an athlete that talks all the time and they go silent, something's wrong. <laughs> if you've got a person that never talks, they start talking, something's probably on, wrong. Tone of voice, you know, I got people when they're stressed, you know, they get whiny. I got other people when they're stressed, they get very aggressive. So, you know, there's field things that you can develop over time, I think, to determine degree of readiness. So, like a lot of the the endurance people I have, they, they have morning runs. And some are very designed, some are pretty open where the athlete makes the decision. Well, how do they make that decision? Mm-hmm. So we have certain checks. The, the first five minutes out the door, different rhythms, different shapes. We have modified gait. They kind of check themselves out, monitor that first five minutes before they do the session, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So how many times you went out the door in the morning on a morning run and you're all bent over, you've been on the computer for 80 hours the day before, you slept crummy, and you notice your first five minutes, you can't stand upright, your hips are tight, a right knee is bothering you. You know these things, but if you don't have a systematic grid that you're monitoring those things, you're going to do one or two decisions. You're going to say, hey, I can't run today, or I'm going to bull through this. Well, both of those solutions have blown up a lot of careers. <laughs> both, of those, both of those are not, not actually solutions, and they're just... I guess we can just classify them as, as poor decisions in the process. Reactionary measures. <laughs> Reactionary measures. Then one of the things that I was interested in, in asking you about today is based on this, on, on those four pillars that, that you mentioned, you, you have this idea that athletes have different batteries and that, you know, you might have a, a full battery in, in, in one, one of your batteries might be full, but maybe two or three of, of your other batteries might, might not be. Could you talk a little bit more about that, that idea of the different batteries that, that the athlete has and, and how do you go about approaching this? Yeah, so I, I started using the battery analogy when I was a university coach because I, I had kids from all over the world with different levels of understanding of physiology or psychology or whatnot. And, uh, you know, ever, back then it was Walkmans and music players, so everybody knew batteries. And if the batteries started fading, your music. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, you know, in modern times, these kids can understand batteries. And now with cell phones and all of our stuff, batteries are there. So it was the idea like in energy systems, we have ATPC, we have alactic, we have anaerobic glycolic, uh, we have anaerobic threshold, anaerobic power, aerobic power. You got So these are like battery systems and mm-hmm. we can pull from a battery system if we've got gaps, but then that's going to compromise the net battery output of all those systems. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can look at this, there's hormonal batteries, there's immune batteries in the biologics, there's neurochemical batteries in the balance of those battery systems. Uh, on a global sense, there's cognitive batteries, emotional batteries, physiological batteries. So you got all these various battery systems. And yeah, you can, and, and this gets into training design, you can charge up some of these big batteries 
-hmm. But if you've got gaps or you ignore other batteries, eventually they're going to start pulling current from your good batteries. And that's also in programming design. If all you do is charge low hanging batteries and you forget to charge your main battery, again, the system's going to have failure. Mm -hmm. So I like the battery idea to try to explain or corral cats, if you will, on the complexity of all these drivers that are involved in movement expression and sport. Mm -hmm. I'll let you talk more about that on, on, on your presentation in, in October and just, just leave the, the listeners with, with just a little bit of a teaser here. And then when we start discussing this, these different models of approaching athlete development, one of the key things that we're trying to do with with this conference and with the 2017 conference that, that we had is how do we plan ahead for the challenges that, you know, that endurance sports and triathlon in particular might, might bring to coaches and athletes and sports scientists and researchers and so on. So how do you see this process of developing athletes? Do you see any changes in the, in the near future? Or what do you think that we should be doing differently in the near future to make sure that we are successful in this, in this process? Well, it, it kind of jumps into this big topic of long-term athlete development. Mm -hmm. And I really struggle with that concept. A um, lot of research, a lot of attempts. I mean, if you look at the world-leading soccer academies, football academies, they're not doing a very good job. No, I, th there was one team in London that less than 1% of their academy players were on the main team. Mm-hmm but they were spending millions of dollars in facilities and all of this. So I think the number one problem I see with uh, youth and adolescent and maybe even high school development is we're trying to train these kids like they're already elite. And there's a lot of burnout and frustration and labeling and classifying. You know, I work in the NHL and the hockey world and, you know, the guys I, I really enjoy are the guys that weren't the superstars all the way up. You know, they were just grinders and they found a way into the league or they were late development people. So when I look at that, you know, I'm curious, okay, these late arrivers, how did they get there? So I'm going to study their journey. And these kids that burn out or ended up injured all the time, how did they get there? It sounds cliche, but one of the things we're seeing missing is kids aren't having fun. We do sport, we do recreation for enjoyment, for self-discovery, for curiosity. So if you have program designs and you're stunting curiosity, it's void of fun. It's void of self-exploration. It's doomed to fail. You know, we've, we've done tons of study in track and field on world-class, world juniors, under-21s, so on and so forth. Very few make it to the senior level. And, and the two big rocks for, for that, in my opinion, are the, the program and the coach did not evolve. They just kept doing what they were doing when they were successful and trying to do more of it. Or the sports injury situation crashed the train. 
So they, they got bad advice or they went down the wrong path trying to address the injury problem. So those, those are two big trends when I do retro analysis of, uh, of the process. My first question with kids all the time, when did you stop having fun with your sport? When did you stop being curious? Yeah, it's interesting because we, from the 2017 conference, there was a paper published on, on the future proofing of triathlon and this expert consensus and, and recommendations on what the sport could or should actually do moving forward to, to ensure that. And, and this, on this one topic, specifically on athlete development, that fun piece comes, comes over quite a lot. And uh, one of the experts that was, that was interviewed for that paper, he, he actually mentions that, you know, like you're training 12, 13, 14 years old. The first thing that, that the coach was, was saying that should come to, to, to their minds all the time is, is this fun? Are we having fun with this training session that we're having today? And then as, as the athlete progresses along the way, trying to make sure that the process is not always just coach-led, but it's also athlete-led as well. So that, like, as you mentioned, you know, that, that curiosity piece is always there, that fun piece is always there, and that the athletes can discover a little bit more along the way and, I guess, keep their engagement and progress in the sport. And like you said, maybe these are the, going to be the grinders, the final way to always stick in and, and make it to the, to the high level. And, and there's a sidebar to this too. I, this, this problem of tr treating these younger developing athletes like they're senior mature athletes. Kids want to compete and want to see where they're at. And we get so be busy training people, we forget to let them compete. Like I work with some age group track and field kids. We have competitions two or three times a week. And some part of the training session or a mock competition or whatever, they want to see progress and change and, and to challenge themselves. If all I'm doing is training, they don't have the intellectual sophistication to see how this is moving things forward. They need a more direct feedback loop like, hey, I did this the last comp and I did that this comp, I'm getting better. That's interesting because I, I, I want to say that in, in a lot of scenarios, probably coaches and organizations try to shy away from, from competition a little bit and they just focus, focus a little bit more on the training process. And then when you do have competitions, like, okay, this is our main competition or the season where you have like a couple or a few preparatory competitions that you treat as secondary, but then you have that, that one specific event that you, you aim to prepare your athletes for that. And then as you mentioned, you, you get into that mistake of training those these young athletes as, as if they were already elite performers, and that takes a whole bunch from the training process from them. Well, and then competition is a skill. Mm -hmm. And the only way to practice a skill is to practice that skill. And so if you're not practicing competing, you could be a training machine, but you compete poorly. So we see this all the time in the NCAA track and field. They have indoor season, outdoor season, and then if they're really good at summer season. So they're competing six to eight months a year, every weekend, sometimes several events. Then they turn pro and they can't get into meets. They're not good enough or whatever. And they go from competing 50 times a year to five. Mm -hmm. And the wheels come off. So even at that level, there's a density pattern to competitions. 
And I think we get, you know, we put, we're afraid to compete because they may get injured or we're afraid to compete because maybe they're not quite ready. We have all these excuses on why not to compete or we bias our research and say, well, it's going to take this many weeks to recover and all of that. Well, there's other ways to compete. We're, I'm sorry, but we're avoiding competition opportunities. It's epidemic. I agree. And that's, that's a really good perspective. And I think that's, that's a really good point for us to, to, to wrap up our, our conversation. Then just one last thing that I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, you're going to present on our seminars in October and the title of your presentation is energy leaks and disturbances. And, and it goes a lot into, into things that we, that we have talked about here today. I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you'd like to point out to listeners or to those who might sign up to watch your presentation in October about what you're going to be, what you're going to be discussing in, in a few more details in, in October. Well, I th one of my pet peeves on webcasts and seminars and whatnot is it's an information dump. You know, you, you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. And, you know, I, I hope what I'm able to present is not just knowledge base items, but application, mm -hmm. the, the art of coaching, the art of being a gatekeeper, uh, the art of being a questioner. Uh, the art of being an observer, and, and how to look for trends and patterns, almost like fractal geometry, to organize this massive rush of information we get daily as a coach or as a, a high-performance provider. All right. I'm happy to hear that because that's, that's exactly the, the reason why we, we were so keen on, on having you as, as one of our presenters, and I hope everyone's ex as excited as we are in watching your presentation come come October. Dan, thank you so much for, for taking your time today. Like I said, we're really excited. Looking forward to, to seeing your presentation in, in October. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And you've got a tremendous lineup. I'm anxious to hear some of these guys speak myself. We do. We, that, that's true. We, we do have a, a tremendous lineup. And we are, we're, we're pretty excited about each of, of the presentations that we're, we're going to be having as part of this after this conference. Good. Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation with Dan today and if you're interested in knowing a little bit more about his concepts and the ideas that he mentioned during this podcast, then make sure that you check our online conference October 8, 11 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't attend the conference, then just make sure that you check our website www.edmonton.triathlon.org as the recordings will be made available once the conference is over. This was our episode number three, and we look forward to bringing more great content for you guys in the near future. Thank you so much.